0: Commentator Ian Dugut appropriately reminded me as I read that this passage is part of God's word. It's part of God's inspired word and therefore it is useful for all of us for teaching, for correction and for growing in righteousness. So with some caution but also uh, expectation, uh, let's turn to Daniel chapter 9 together and read verses uh, 20 through 27 in Daniel chapter 9. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, then for sixty two weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Let's uh, let's pray before we begin for for God's wisdom. God, uh, as we approach Your Word, we approach it with excitement, for it is Your Word to us, to Your people, and we ask that You would give us wisdom and understanding that we might see glorious visions of what you are doing for your people and for your glory. And we pray this in your name. Amen. As I was preparing for the sermon and thinking over the context of these chapters, I couldn't help but wonder what it would be like to be Gabriel. And the Gospels, if you think about Gabriel, he shows up and, and with some news for Mary, and his news is met with confusion, wonder, and fear. And Mary uh, wonders how his words can possibly be true. In in chapter uh, 7 and 8, as Gabriel came to to Daniel, we were told that Daniel fell down sick and lay sick on his bed at Gabriel's words. And I think if I were Gabriel, I'd be wondering, well, what's he going to do this time when I give this prophecy and and, and all the confusion of this uh, prophecy? But as we approach what Gabriel is saying here, and, and as we think, okay, we've got 70 weeks and sealing visions and, and a desolator and, and all of that in, in verses 24 through 27, I don't want to miss some very comforting words that set the context for this vision in verses 20 through 23. So if you'd pause for a few minutes and look at these, these first few verses, I think they will give us some, some context and also some important reminders as we go into this vision. First, if you look at verse 20... The text reminds us the context of Gabriel's arrival. Gabriel arrives while Daniel is in the midst of prayer. Daniel is on his knees praying. And if we look back and say, okay, what is Daniel praying for? We see that Daniel is on his knees pleading for forgiveness for his sins. He is begging that God would atone for his sins, overlook his sins, that he would in his mercy give grace and forgiveness to the sins of of himself and of his people. And then he goes on to, to plead with God that God would restore the relationship between himself and his people. This is a prayer of confession and a prayer that God would act on behalf of his people you know, it's easy to to get either confused or excited by sort of the challenge theologically of what's going to happen later in this passage or perhaps the the excitement of future prophecy. But the reason this vision is here, the, the context of this vision, the purpose of this vision is coming on the heels of a prayer that God would act to forgive our sins, to heal our relationship with him and to save his people. And if we keep that context in mind, I think we will keep the grand purposes that God is working for and, and the goal towards which this vision is driving. It's, it's leading us to understand more of how God is going to answer Daniel's prayer and how God is going to forgive his people's sins and with mercy save them for the glory of, of his name. So that context helps us. A second thing to note about the context in verses 21 and 22 is that Gabriel arrives with a a specific purpose here. And uh, when we read his words, uh, it can perhaps be uh, a bit ironic, but Gabriel says that he's here to help Daniel understand. He's here to give Daniel understanding that that Daniel did not have. In other words, the whole purpose of this vision, as, as complex as it might be, is to clarify things in Daniel's mind, to give Daniel understanding that he didn't previously have. So as we come to the text here, we should, we should have the same expectation that God would be giving us some greater understanding of his plans and his purposes. When I read uh, this passage initially, I imagined myself sort of uh, in, in The Hobbit. And if you've read The Hobbit, you can picture Bilbo Baggins and this creature Gollum having a riddle competition. And they're giving riddles back and forth, trying to make them more and more obscure so the other can't guess what's going on. And at first I thought, well, man, this passage seems like a riddle that I've got to try to figure out something complex that's going on. But Gabriel reminds us in, in these first few verses that he says, when, he, when, when Gabriel came to him, he made me understand. And he said, Daniel, I've come to give you insight and understanding. This passage is not here to offer us something complex, confusing, to rack our brains. It's here to give us greater understanding of God's plans and God's purposes. And finally, if we look at... at verse 23. And we think about verse 23 here. Gabriel says that at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. We think about the times that we pray to God and we're on our knees making pleas before God. We're, we're begging God to, to answer some prayers. And and it's easy for us, as, as we don't have maybe an immediate verbal response, to wonder, is God going to answer? Will he answer? When will he answer? How will he answer? And we have these questions of what God is going to do in response to our prayer. And as we, as we think about that, I can think of few verses that would be as comforting as this verse. When Gabriel comes and says, Daniel, you may not have known it, but as you were on your knees praying, while you were still praying a word from God went out. A word from God who has heard your prayer and is answering your prayer went out, and I am here to tell it to you. Christian, when you are on your knees praying, God is hearing. God is acting. God is answering. And Gabriel's words here give Daniel perhaps some inside information, but the same promise is true to you and to me as we pray, that God hears our prayer and God is answering our prayer. Perhaps not in our time or in our way, but this verse reminds us that God is acting through the prayers of his people. I have a, a vivid memory of an afternoon in October, two years ago. I was serving as the athletic director for Veritas Academy at the time, and our cross-country team was competing in the district cross-country meet. I remember we were, we were gathered around awaiting the results for this meet and we were trying to figure out what the results were going to be. We were calculating, we were analyzing where each person finished in the race, trying to figure out were we going to win. And I was, I was set apart a bit from the rest of our team and a lady heard our conversations and she came up to me and she said, I tabulated the results of the race. Would you like me to tell you the results? And I assured her that I would be very happy for her to tell me the results of the race. And so she told me uh, that, that we had won the race. And I remember uh, standing there glad for the news, but I didn't tell the rest of my team. And the rest of the team had to wait 30 or 40 minutes for the results to be announced. As I think about this scenario in my own life, it was, sure, comforting and exciting to know that we had won. But me knowing 30 minutes ahead of everyone else did not change the results. The results were set in stone. I may have known a bit ahead of everyone else, but the results were going to be the same either way. I would encourage us as we think about uh, Daniel praying here, we might, we might say, wow, Daniel sure is lucky to have Gabriel giving him sort of the inside scoop on what's happening in his prayers. Here's Daniel praying and Gabriel comes and whispers, you know, here's what's going to happen. God's given a word and he's going to answer your prayer. But we're like the rest of the the cross-country team. We may not know the answer ahead of time, but that is not going to change the results. God is working. God is answering our prayers. God is acting through your prayers, even as we wait to see how they will be worked out in our lives, even as we may wait days or weeks or years to see how God is working in our prayers. He is working. And that is one of the most comforting things that I can think of as I come to my God in prayer. And so as we approach this vision, I want us to remember first that the context is Daniel's prayer for forgiveness and for salvation. That this vision is given that we might have greater information, understanding, and insight into how God is forgiving and saving his people. And that no matter how we might see our lives or how we might see things working out, God's answer for forgiveness and for salvation is being worked out. Whether we have the inside track through an angel, Gabriel, Or not, and as we think about the assurance of this prayer in the context of what Gabriel is telling us here, I think that gives us a a great assurance as we look at verses 24 through 27 in this text. Well, based on on the comfort of a God who answers prayer, who gives understanding, and who brings hope to a humble plea for forgiveness, I want to look now at these next set of verses, verses 24 through 27. One of the difficulties in figuring out exactly what's going on in these verses or or looking at them is that there are many possible explanations uh, for what these verses are referring to. And many of the explanations seem to fit very well with a couple of the verses or or maybe even several of the phrases, but seem to, to gloss over or ignore some complications in other parts of the passage. Another another um, difficulty is that there are so many questions that need to be answered. One of the commentators that I looked at listed 20 questions that have to be answered if we're going to accurately analyze what this passage is saying. I'm not going to answer or ask 20 questions tonight in looking at this passage, but I want to ask two questions. And I want to um, look at these two questions as a guide to what these verses may be saying to us as we think about... Um, this time period of, of 70 weeks of this anointed one and then a prince who is going to destroy the city and the desolations that, that will come following it. So the first question I want to ask as we wrestle with this passage is about these, these 70 weeks or as some of your translations may say, these 77s. Almost every commentator pretty much universally would agree that this is referring to sets of years. Years. Um, That that a week is not actually a week, but a set of seven years. And so we get 70 sets of of seven years, which if you're doing math in your head, that would be 490 years. And the first question is, well, is is Gabriel talking about a, a literal set of 490 years? Or is he using these numbers more symbolically to talk about the fullness and the extent of God's plan? And that's the first question that we need to ask of this text if we're going to understand what... This prophecy is referring to. There are certainly uh, those, uh, many who will take this as a a literal set of 490 years, Um, and those who take this to be a a specific set of 490 years will usually uh, argue that the time period of this prophecy begins when Nehemiah is building the walls of Jerusalem, which is about 460-457 B.C., and if you do some quick math using your B.C. and A.D., you'll find uh, that 490 years after that is about 26 to 30 A.D., roughly the time when Jesus would be on earth in his earthly ministry. And so those who would interpret this as, as 490 literal years would say, well, the prophecy is referring to the time between Nehemiah and Christ. And it's talking about the rebuilding of the city uh, leading to the ministry of Christ, who is this anointed one who will be cut off. Um, I would uh, argue that those who would interpret the passage this way have a bit of a problem on the beginning and the end uh, of, of this time period. First, it's, it's certainly uh, uh, legitimate to argue that this prophecy would start when Nehemiah was rebuilding the walls, but it's a bit of an arbitrary start. You'll note that Daniel is praying for the restoration of his people to Jerusalem, and Nehemiah was leading the third wave of exiles to return to Jerusalem. And the question would be, why would the prophecy not start when the first wave of, of exiles came back, or the second wave? Why the, why the third wave of exiles? And, and as most of the commentators who were arguing for this, it quickly became apparent that they chose that one because it worked out numerically with what they were trying to, to arrive at. But starting with your conclusion is not a good way to interpret uh, prophecy. Um, so I think it's a bit arbitrary to say that the prophecy would start um, 80 years after Daniel with this third third wave of exiles. Second, um, there's a a particular problem at the end of the prophecy, because if 490 years leads us to the time of Christ, pretty much every commentator that I read would argue that the desolations and destruction that this passage talk about refer to uh, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Well, that's 40 years after the end of this 490 years. That's 40 years after Christ came, and so we now have 530 years And and there's a lot of acrobatics that need to be done um, for for people to to interpret this as a literal 490 years. Some of the uh, arguments they will make, well, maybe there's a gap in the prophecy between the 69 weeks and the last set of weeks, or perhaps the last set of weeks is symbolic and the first ones are literal. But again, it seems like a lot of uh, acrobatic interpretation to try to meet the, the predetermined conclusion. So I would argue that it is much more simple to take these 77s as symbolic Numbers to refer to the fullness of god 's plan, that is certainly how these numbers are used elsewhere in scripture. You might think this exact same number when Jesus says that we ought to forgive seventy times seven times, and certainly that 's not saying that we have four hundred and ninety times to forgive, and then our, you know we 're up and we can we can go from there it 's a, it's a number that means the fullness you ought to continue to do it repeatedly um, and, and seven and seventy is used that way elsewhere um, in in prophecy so I would argue that we should look at these 70 weeks or 70 periods of seven as a reference to the fullness of God's work and the fullness of God carrying out this plan of forgiveness and salvation for his people rather than an exact set of 490 years. The second question um, that needs to be asked then is how much or or how, how far into God's plan does this text refer? In other words, if we're talking about the fullness of God's plan, Um, Is the point of this passage to point us directly to Christ and and to Christ's work and then to stop there? In other words, is the the focal point of this text just the the ministry, death, and resurrection of Christ? Or is this passage giving us the full scope of God's work in history, which would include the first coming as well as the second coming of Christ? Um, And that's the second question that needs to be answered in this text. Uh, I had to wrestle with the answer to this question as I read because most of the commentators that I would generally rely on, um, Sinclair Ferguson and others whom, whom you wouldn't have known, would argue that this passage refers just to the events in the first century A.D., meaning the death uh, and resurrection of Christ Jesus followed or culminating with the destruction of Jerusalem. And that's the extent uh, of this passage. If, if we're going to take it from that, if you want to look, and, I, and hopefully you have your Bibles open, Uh, Before you, if we interpret the passage this way, we can see that Jerusalem would be rebuilt and that in this last week, um, one would be cut off, and that's clearly Christ's death would be cut off. Um, Then we have a prince destroying the city and the sanctuary, a clear reference to the destruction of Jerusalem. But then in verse 27, we have um, a he, and we don't know who that he is, making a strong covenant with many for one week and for half a week putting an end to sacrifices and offerings. For those who believe that that this passage is really culminating and focusing on the death of Christ, Christ is the one here making the covenant with many people and ending sacrifices and offerings. And the argument would be that Christ makes a covenant with all of his people, the new covenant in his blood, and that the new covenant in his blood then means that sacrifices and offerings are no longer necessary. Because that's the argument that many would would make. As I look at this passage, I, I... I wrestled because there are are several things that just don't seem to fit with this interpretation to me. Um, The first thing that doesn't seem to fit is this term. He shall make a strong covenant with his people. Nowhere in the Old Testament is this term for covenant used when God is making a covenant with his people. This is not the term that's used for that. This term means to sort of oppress or manipulate people into being on your side. And so this term to make a covenant seems much more likely uh, to be the, a covenant that the one opposing God's people is making to draw people in as he opposes the people of God than it does a reference to God's work in his people. The second thing is the he here, if you uh, think just grammatically, when you have a he, you usually take the he to be the last person that was mentioned in the text, and the last person who was mentioned here is the prince who's going to destroy the city, not the anointed one who's going to be cut off. And so again, it seems to me that the one making this covenant is the, the destroyer of God's city, not um, Christ who was cut off. And, and lastly, the last comment that I would make is I, I agree with, with many commentators who say that in this text, when it talks about putting an end to sacrifices and offerings, this seems like a negative idea. This doesn't seem like the text is presenting this as a good thing. Like, oh, the sacrifices and offerings will be done. Great. Now, it seems like a negative This person is going to lead many, make a strong covenant, and he's going to cut off the sacrifices and offerings. This is a a bad thing that's happening. And so um, I struggle to see verse 27 as really talking about Christ and his work. The flip side then where I would fall is that uh, this is talking about the full scope of of God's plan uh, in history and that the end here is talking about um, the, the end leading up to the second coming of Christ. And if you follow the prophecy here, Under this interpretation, it would go something like this. Gabriel's telling Daniel that uh, for the first period, Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Jerusalem will be rebuilt, and it will continue to exist, but it will exist in a troubled time. And that's certainly accurate historically, that Jerusalem is not restored to its former glory. It exists in a troubled time. Then one, an anointed one, will come and be cut off, and that would be Christ and his death Christ the anointed one who is cut off for his people. After that, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And that would refer to the destruction of Jerusalem under Titus, who is the prince, uh, the, the rising emperor of Rome. But then, as we continue on, the destruction of Jerusalem is just a prelude to the desolations and destruction that will come as this opponent of God works to oppose God's people. And so this, this opponent of God's people will continue. It says, war will continue to the end. Desolations are decreed. He will make a covenant um, for one week with many. We will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings, and abominations will come as this person wreaks desolation. This would, this would refer, then, um, to the continuing to the end as Satan opposes the work of God's people and the work of Christ in his people until at the very end, as the, the prophecy concludes, the decreed end is poured out on Satan or the desolator. And so that's how I have taken, and, and that uh, I believe is what this text is referring to. Um, as, a, as another uh, point of this, you'll see that this this last period is divided into two half weeks, or three and a half three and a half years here. And three and a half years is significant because Daniel chapter 7 used three and a half years for the time that the great beast or Satan would oppose God's people. And Revelation twice talks about three and a half years as being the extent or a symbol for how long Satan would oppose God's people leading up to the end. Um, and so that's how I would take this. But perhaps I'll leave you with the words of Jerome, an, an ancient church commentator who listed nine possible interpretations and said, I'll leave you to decide which you think is best, and let's get on to what this means. And we know this means for, for us in our lives. Um, we want to do the work to see what God's word means. Um, but but I think uh, the comfort in this is, however we take this prophecy, no matter which interpretation we choose, God fulfilled it. If it's Christ that this is referring to in just his work in the first century, that happened and God fulfilled it. If it's the fullness of time, that's happening and God's fulfilling it. So there's not a, an issue here of whether God's fulfilling this prophecy. It's just what part of God's plan is this passage referring to, and I think that's a comfort to us. But I do want to ask, if this is the case, what better understanding do we have now? What understanding do we gain from this vision that Gabriel gives us? Well, remember what first sparked Daniel's prayer. Remember back at the beginning of chapter 9, back in the first couple of verses. Why was Daniel praying? Daniel was praying because he was reading God's prophecies through Jeremiah, and he read in Jeremiah that God had promised that after 70 years he was going to restore his people. He says back in in the first couple of verses, I was reading in the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet the years that must pass before the end of desolations to Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And so Jeremiah's prophecy leads Daniel to assume that after 70 years, Israel is going to be restored to Jerusalem. After 70 years, the desolation of God's people is going to be over. And God is going to restore his people. Well, what's on Daniel's mind here? I think it's clear that Daniel's hope and prayer and expectation is God. After these 70 years, you will restore Israel to Jerusalem and your temple will be set up and sacrifices will be able to happen and and your kingdom will flourish just like it did under David. And sure, that, that is a good hope for Daniel to have. But what God wants to tell Daniel is, no, my plans are far bigger than that. I'm not just going to restore temple worship for Israel and Jerusalem. I'm going to be at work in something much bigger, much grander. Yes, it's going to be a much longer plan as it works out. This This is a plan that's not going to be finished in a few more years, Daniel. But the plan that I'm working is a greater plan, a bigger plan. And it's going to be much more glorious than merely the end of exile after 70 years. And so Daniel through this prophecy, will gain the understanding that he shouldn't be looking just to the end of this 70-year period. He should be looking to a longer-term plan that God is working amidst his people. Not just a longer-term, though, he also needs to understand that God's purposes are much greater and much more glorious than he could ever have imagined. God is not merely restoring what once was. God is actually working a plan to bring a complete end to sin, an everlasting righteousness, an anointed city, This is something much greater than just the restoration of animal sacrifices. This is a grand plan for God to restore his people to the wholeness that they had before the fall. That is the plan that God wants Daniel to see. This is bigger than you, Daniel. This is bigger than what you're thinking. So this vision is clarifying for Daniel that God's purposes are not just about finished, but that the next stage in this long-term history of God's work is approaching. And this plan will be greater and more glorious than Daniel could have ever imagined. That's the hope that we have too. That God is at work in a plan, not just to restore some stage of his people, but to bring about great, grand, and glorious hope through Christ, through this anointed one. This anointed one who will be cut off, Christ Jesus, will be the crux of a hope of everlasting righteousness and an end to sin and a dwelling in in the most holy place, in a fulfillment of all God's prophecies. That's what's being worked out on God's timeline and God's plan. Well, if that's the case, I want to end with just a couple encouragements that this gives to our hearts. First, as we look at this passage and this vision, we are reminded that God is answering prayer and working out His purposes for the good of His people, but on His timeline. On his timeline. We so often judge God's faithfulness in light of our expectations, don't we? God, here's a prayer that I have for you. And if you answer it the way I'm expecting you to answer it, then you're faithful. And if it's not answered the way I'm expecting it, well, God, I don't know what you're up to. Because that's not what I was praying for. Isn't that often the heart that we have? But God's faithfulness to his people comes in his time the only guarantee is that his faithfulness and his goodness will be beyond what we could have ever imagined. That's easy. I've heard some people say, well, if you're going to say that God didn't answer your prayer but he's working out something bigger in his time, isn't that just a cop-out? Isn't that just a cop-out where God didn't answer your prayer so you're going to say, oh, well, he must be working out something bigger in his time uh, when, say, the objectors, maybe God just doesn 't care for you or, or doesn't exist, but that response completely misses the point, and it completely misses the context of the rest of the scripture, because see, God demonstrates over and over to his people that he is working a greater plan out against their expectations. Perhaps you could think about the life of Abraham, and here's Abraham who receives a promise of seed and land, and he prays, "God, give me the promise, seed and land, and he waits. And he waits, and he waits, and Sarah can't have children, and Sarah can't have children, and where's this plan, God? What happened? Okay, I'll try it my way. But in the end, God blesses him with the promised seed through Isaac, and in descendants and land above anything he could have hoped and dreamed. Or or maybe we could think of the life of Joseph, and here's Joseph in the pit with his brothers having thrown him there, and here he's praying and God's not answering. In fact, he gets sold to slavery, so he prays and God doesn't answer because he gets thrown into prison and he prays and then people forget him in prison and where's God? And then lo and behold, God is working out something greater than he could have ever imagined as he rises to save his people as the second greatest. in Egypt. See, God doesn't just tell us that He's working out something greater than we could imagine. He shows us that He's working out something greater than we could have ever imagined. And all through Scripture, we see God's faithfulness again and again and again as He works against our expectations to work out things that are far greater than we could have ever even imagined. We could go on and on with the different stories of His people, but the point is that just like these Old Testament stories in your life and in my life and in the lives of God's people, we have a God who has demonstrated in history and in prophecy that his plans are longer, grander, better, and more stunningly glorious than anything we dare to hope for. And that's the God that we believe in. What a comfort that is. But second, we cannot do justice to this passage without looking more closely at verse 24. We spent a lot of the wrestling with this passage in verses 25 through 27, but verse 24 is very clear. Verse 24 is Gabriel's word to Daniel of what God is doing. What's the final goal that God is working here? And look at what he says in verse 24. These weeks are decreed. Why? They are decreed about your people and your city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal, that is, to confirm or fulfill pro- uh, prophecies and visions, and to anoint this most holy place. See, as God's plan for his people unfolds, it is a plan that will bring about perfect answers to Daniel's prayer. It's not a plan that will just restore animal sacrifices so forgiveness is possible. It's a plan that perfectly answers Daniel's prayer for forgiveness and perfectly answers Daniel's plea for salvation and restoration. God is working something far greater and far beyond what Daniel's asking for, something that would blow our minds and alter the categories in which Daniel is thinking. God is working a perfect, a complete end to your sin and my sin and the sin of his people, a complete atonement for your iniquity and my iniquity and the iniquity of his people, an everlasting righteousness that will belong to you and to me and to God's people. It's a restoration of the relationship that we have with God before the fall. The fulfillment of all God's promises. The dwelling with him in fellowship and in a holy place. And these promises are yours. These promises are mine. These promises belong to all God's people in Christ and because of Christ. That's what Christ does for us. Christ does not just offer us something to generically hope in. Christ offers us the perfect promise of an end to sin an end to transgression, an atonement for iniquity, perfect righteousness, dwelling with God in an anointed city, and a fulfillment of all God's words and promises. As I read this vision, I couldn't help but think of a scene in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, and if you've read the sixth book, The Silver Chair, you might picture Jill and Eustace, two children, who are supposed to follow a set of signs that Aslan has given to them them, so that they might rescue the lost prince. And the third sign directs them to find a message written on stone in an ancient city. And they're then to obey that message, and they will find the lost prince. So Jill and Eustace are wandering through this city, and they're tumbling down corridors, and they're sliding through tunnels, and they're winding their way through paths, and they have no clue where they are or where they're going, and they see no hint of any message anywhere written on stones in this ancient city. But then they go up into the upper story of a house, and they look down on the city, and they realize that all those tunnels and corridors that they were sliding around in and lost in were actually letters and words spelling out the meaning of the message they were supposed to follow. See, I think that our lives can be much like this. We get lost in the middle of the details of our lives and we we face life with, with stresses and anxieties and, and frustrations or, or doubts about God and what He's doing. We we encounter opposition or suffering, pain or trials we mess up and realize our own errors and, and all the details of our life surround us. Or, or we, we look at the culture around us and we see a culture that's progressively throwing off any moorings of, of morality and, and all of the details of this life seem to surround us and we think, where is God? What, what is God doing in all of these mishmash of details in my life? What's God doing in these, these pains and these promises and how is this all fitting together? What this vision that Gabriel gives us does, it, is, it allows us to, to get up top and to look down on what God is doing throughout history. It, it gives us that grand vision, that overview. And all of the details of our lives are, fit into this, but it gives us the grand picture. Through all of the details of your life, the frustrations and the pains and the failures, through all that we're going through, the grand plan that God is working out is the salvation of his people. The restoration of his relationship with his people. The forgiveness of the sins of his people. And the hope with an anointed one who was cut off for us. That's the grand picture of what God's doing. That's what's happening even as we get lost in all of the little details of our life. That's what God is working in you and in me. And so whatever your Monday morning holds tomorrow or whatever your July holds next month or whatever your year is holding or holds These are details that are part of, they're the tunnels, the the little parts of God's grand plan where he is sanctifying you, bringing you to this everlasting hope in Christ Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson's conclusion about this vision is perhaps the best way to conclude for us as well. He says, It was right that Daniel should long to see Jerusalem rebuilt and the temple worship reinstituted. But the Lord wanted Daniel to see beyond these things, to what they foreshadowed, however painful that might be. For God's ultimate purpose was not a temple made with hands or a holy place entered once a year. His plan, his purpose, was his son, who would be the place in which men were to approach God. And his sacrifice was the one which would bring forgiveness for his people. To think that you and I, and the hope that we have, are included in this prophecy given 2,500 years ago. I can't help but think of the words to an old hymn which says, I heard an old, old story, how a Savior came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. And he loved me ere I knew him, and all my love therefore is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. The old story that we've heard in this prophecy is our story, and it's our hope in Christ Jesus. Of course, we await the perfection of these promises. A complete end to sin and everlasting righteousness have been assured to us in Christ, but they have not yet been completed. But we know that they will be with the same assurance that we know and have seen God begin to fulfill this vision he gave to Daniel. So in the meantime, may we glory in what he has done even as we long for what he will do in our lives for his name's sake. Let's pray. Father, there are confusing words and difficult words here as we try to discern what exactly these words are referring to. But when we step back, what we see are words that are clearly fulfilled by your work in history, a plan that is long, but a plan that is glorious, A plan that is working out not only glory for your name but also salvation for your people. A plan that is answering Daniel's prayer that we might be forgiven not for anything in ourselves but all for the sake of our merciful God and Savior. I pray that through the details of the week to come we might keep this large vision in perspective knowing that God is at work in us, through us for the sake of his son Christ Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.